This is They Create Worlds, episode 190, Sega and CSK, part one. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Well, Alex... This is episode 190. You know what that means. We're 10 away from 200. I'm not sure that math is possible. Are we certain this is the 190th episode? My notes say so. Hmm. Well, you do keep pretty good notes. Yes, that's right. We started this mad journey back in September 2015, and we have never stopped. Like, literally, never stopped. We came close once. <laughs> Sane podcasts do things like organizing their material into seasons and taking breaks and doing other things with their lives, living life to the fullest. We just pump out two podcasts a month, every month, without fail since September 2015. And so we are indeed at episode 190, just 10 away from that big 200. What have we got planned for the folks for that big two zero zero, Jeffrey? We're going to talk about something. We haven't figured that part out yet. I would like to incorporate that something with you, the listener. Yes, you, right there, listening to this in your ear hall. I want you to take a moment out of your precious, precious day and feel free to email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com, where I will be looking for you to send me things that you were interested in in this last 200 episodes or so. What did you like? What did you hate? What was your favorite moment? What was your funniest moment? Your saddest moment? Your inspirational moment? Your, you know, just listening to Alex drone on for an hour puts me to sleep every night and I need it. It's kept me asleep for the last (laughs) five years. Please, for the love of God, keep it going. <laughs> or it's put me to sleep for the last five years. Please, for the love of God, make it stop. Though you could have just stopped listening in that case. So I don't know why that's a problem. But if that's your opinion, we'd like to hear that too. <laughs> just a look back at those soon to be uh, 200 episodes as we hit that big milestone. But that's not the only big thing brewing right now, is it, Jeffrey? No, for some ineffable reason. People actually think that we're cool or something. That means that Alex, who is in Atlanta, wants me to drive all the way back to Atlanta, or down to Atlanta, or across to Atlanta. I don't know how this works anymore. There's driving involved. I've done way too much of that lately. What's important is is that we are going to Dragon Con. Not A-Con, B-Con, C-Con, D-Con. But it does start with a D. It is Dragon Con. In Atlanta, Georgia. That's right. Dragon Con is not a specifically retro game or video gaming focused convention, but it is a large, just overarching science fiction fantasy nerddom convention that encompasses a large variety of fandoms, including video games. We've been talking for a while about trying to take uh, They Create Worlds on the road a little bit just to promote ourselves some, which should come as no shock to anyone here. We're rather terrible at 
We were really picking up steam on those talks on about, oh, I don't know, January, February, 2020. Yeah, something happened, doom. <laughs> so as a way of easing into that, we thought, well, I'm in Atlanta and go to Dragon Con anyway. They have a video game track. It seemed like a, a logical idea to kind of ease into this by uh, making convention appearance in my local locality. So yeah, we're going to put on a panel at Dragon Con. This year is the 30th anniversary of The Seventh Guest, which is kind of a milestone in CD-ROM drive adoption, Dawn of the Sillywood era, and all of this other uh, crazy stuff that was going on in the early to mid-1990s. It's a topic that we haven't covered on the show yet. Uh, Sillywood we have, but not Seventh Guest specifically. Though, spoiler alert, I imagine that we'll probably have an episode drop on the topic right about the same time as this uh, panel appearance. Hint, hint. Uh, though it, it won't be the panel, because they say things like, the, keep it to 50 minutes with time for questions. As you all know, there is no such thing as a 50-minute They Create Worlds episode. Don't look at that one episode. It's not important. Be very, very afraid, because what you actually hear is nothing like the raw recording. <laughs> For instance, the previous episode you may or may not have listened to has a raw recording of over two hours. Yes, I know it's one hour and 30-some-odd minutes. <laughs> That's how much I ripped out of it. That's right. Jeffrey does an amazing job at the editing. We figured that that would be a good topic just to give a fun talk at the con on The Seventh Guest, Dawn of Sillywood, all of that goodness. If you happen to be going to the convention, which is like August 29th to September something or another after that, Labor Day weekend, yeah, feel free to look us up in the app because we'll be giving a talk. You'll see me. You'll see him. I might have stickers. Oh, there will be stickers. Okay. I've been told <laughs> there will be stickers. <laughs> have to find the box. That's not why we are here today. We're here because I know all of you rabid, rabid Sega fans are here to hear about Sega. And not just any Sega, Sega and CSK. That's right. We are going to delve once again into the history of Sega as an organization, but we're going to take a slightly different track to it this time because we are going to examine Sega through the lens of its relationship with Computer Services Corporation, or CSK. Now, of course, we have discussed CSK and Sega before in the podcast because we have done episodes covering broadly various periods of Sega history. So we talked about the buyout of Sega from Gulf and Western in 1984 by CSK, and we also talked about a lot of the management turmoil that started going on in the late 1990s when the CSK people started taking a far more active role in the running of Sega. We really have only looked at that from the Sega perspective. We haven't really looked at it from the perspective of why did CSK decide to get involved in this crazy business? What was in it for them? Why did they just kind of allow the thing to cruise on its own for a long time, only to eventually decide that, no, we need to focus all of our attention on it? That material is going to be new, and one thing I'm particularly excited about in all of this is this is also going to give us a chance to revisit the events surrounding the fall of the Dreamcast and the exit of Sega from the hardware business, because as I've been able to get a hold of more Japanese sources and other more interesting sources that are out there, I've come to realize we really all had this raw. By all of us, I mean us as well, because we did our uh, Dreams of Sega episode where we kind of looked at the failures of the Saturn and the Dreamcast both and how that led to Sega exiting the hardware business. 
while we had a lot of good information in there, as I always like to say, for something that's already happened, history sure does seem to change all the time. And as is the case with several other topics that we've covered throughout the eight years, (laughs) almost, almost eight years of doing this podcast, I learn new things, I get new nuances, I develop new interpretations. So we have an opportunity to look at those events in a completely different light, one that I don't believe has ever been examined before, at least not in English sources, and one that gives a better, more nuanced view of what was going on. All I'm hearing is CSK shattered our dream for a perfect Sega. (laughs) No, no, not at all. Not even close, really. Sega would have never been what it was without CSK, and the fall of Sega was really not CSK's fault specifically. It's more that CSK tried to come in at the end and redirect Sega into what they felt was an exciting new direction that just didn't work out. Obviously, Sega's still here. It just didn't go down that path that everyone had hoped for. So the Tower of Power fell. It was already falling. They just tried to redirect it and had some issues. Something like that, yes. We know a lot about Sega. We don't need to rehash a lot of that. As far as I know, we have barely touched anything on CSK, and I imagine that is what we're going to really focus in on, is the origin of CSK, how it came to be a bit, how it knew about Sega, got a hold of Sega, and then ultimately how they directed Sega into something. Yeah, that's basically our topics of conversation. Now, we're not going to do an in-depth corporate history of CSK because I don't even have that information, but we are going to give a nice overview of CSK history and tie it in to what was going on at Sega. As you implied, the first thing we have to do here is definitely not go through Sega history again, or this will be either a five-part episode or a five-hour episode or a ten-hour episode, whichever comes first. Considering it takes me about four to five hours per hour of raw recording to edit, five times ten is fifty. Oh, dear God. (laughs) That's right. So we won't be doing that. We've done the early history of Sega. We've done all the corporate shenanigans that led to the formation of the company that was ultimately purchased by Gulf and Western. We've also done kind of all of the corporate shenanigans that occurred while it was a part of Gulf and Western. We've covered all of that crazy material, so we don't need to do that again. But we do need to set the stage in the sense of talking about CSK history. CSK Corporation was the brainchild of an individual by the name of Isao Okawa. Okawa is an individual that we have certainly talked about before within the context of Sega, certainly someone that people aware of the Sega story, particularly the Sega story around the time of the Dreamcast, have to know. His background has not been fully explored. Isawakawa was actually kind of a late bloomer. He was born in 1926. He was 42 years old when he founded CSK Corporation in 1968. His father was in the clothing business as a wholesaler. Mr. Okawa, Isawakawa, graduated from Waseda University not long after World War II, and then was stricken with pulmonary tuberculosis. 
Now, this was in the immediate post-war period when the Japanese economy was still in ruins and a lot of the infrastructure was gone and everything. So, I mean, tuberculosis is never a great thing, but it was an especially (laughs) troublesome thing to happen at this period. His father was able to sell off assets to obtain streptomycin from the occupation forces, the American occupation forces, which allowed them to cure the disease. He was kind of exposed to computing sometime around 1962 when he took a course on IBM punched card machines. He became quite fascinated with the potential future of this technology. He pivoted at that point into becoming a manager at a company called Nippon Calculation Center, which was a data entry company in Osaka. At the time, he was working at his older brother's taxi business, so he got out of that business and went in that direction instead and captured the attention of another individual by the name of Koki Okuda, who in 1966 founded his own computer services company called Marue Kaysan Center. He so impressed Okuda, I know I'm glossing over things here, but I don't have a huge amount of information on this part of his life, but he impressed Okuda so much with his management skills that he actually supported Okawa in establishing his own company in 1968 as a spinoff from Marue, which was Computer Services Corporation which in the beginning was actually headquartered inside of Marway's facilities, like their conference room was the headquarters of computer services. It's interesting that in the past, when I've talked about computer services, I didn't really quite understand what they were. (laughs) I assumed that they were a company that provided computer services to companies. In Japan, it was very common for decades, much longer than it was in, say, the United States, for big companies to not just buy a computer off the shelf from a major manufacturer. You wouldn't go to Hitachi or Fujitsu or NEC and buy a mainframe or lease a mainframe and all your attendant peripherals and software from them, as people did in the United States with IBM. What they would do is that they would go to a corporation, a middleman, that would figure out their needs, figure out the best way to meet their needs in a way that was unique to their corporation, and then build the system for them by getting a Hitachi mainframe or whatever and pairing it with this, pairing it with that. So I kind of assumed that that is what Computer Services Corporation did too, but it turns out I was wrong. It sounds very similar to how a managed service provider in the corporate world today in the United States would work, where they come in and say, I'm going to provide these services based on what your needs are. I'm going to provide the printers. I'm going to provide the desktops, the servers. I'll come in and fix them when there's issues, find the software you need, buy it from various vendors, handle the licensing, all sorts of things like that. Absolutely. That's exactly what we're talking about. This is what Computer Services Corporation became in the 1980s. But at the very start, that's actually not what they did. They were a staffing company. It's not just that companies in Japan at that time would have a custom computer solution created for them in their business. 
They also wouldn't run that equipment themselves with their own employees or contract with the company that installed the equipment to run it for them. They would actually sometimes go to a completely different company, which was nothing but a staffing company, which would send out contracted engineers to maintain their equipment, not necessarily operate the equipment like on a day-to-day basis, but maintain the equipment, take care of things when it broke down. Basically, IT outsourcing, if you're getting right down to it. Very much then like an MSP. Yeah, but without the sourcing the equipment in the first place. CSK did not build the solution. CSK did not get the computers. CSK did not create the software. CSK was only an essentially IT staffing company that provided engineers that maintained the systems that the companies got from elsewhere. These wouldn't be actual employees of the said company. There are actually companies like that that I know about where they're companies that have technical people who are then leased out to various Mm -hmm. companies that need, hey, I have some big IT project and I need to have X number of tech support people or desktop support people or server installers or network people. Yeah, I don't need them to be here 24-7 forever and ever. I need them to solve this three-month project, six-month project. I want to give this other company a bunch of money, have their people come in, sort out this stuff, and then I'm happy once everything's installed and set up. Sort of, but they're not even the setup people. They're the maintaining people. It's literally outsourcing like the day-to-day IT for the company, like maintaining everything. And of course, back in these days, we're talking mainframes. We're not talking networks. We're not talking having to do like customer support or frontline support for office workers because, it, you know, everyone doesn't have a computer on their desk. There are no networks really or anything. It's just they have this mainframe that they bought or leased from this one company, and now they're bringing in this other company to actually provide the staffing to keep it in working order. Get the bugs out, oil the gears, refill the ticket tape. These are engineers, so also, when things go wrong, fix it. We're talking about skilled employees, we're talking about engineers, so that's what CSK was. They were a company that employed engineers that they would then contract out to existing companies, including some of the biggest companies in Japan. They had a contract with uh, Matsushita, for instance, big consumer electronics company, to maintain the computers at their headquarters building. This kind of stuff was a big deal. So they weren't building systems for clients or programming software for clients. They were IT. They were maintaining the systems. That's the work that they did. So the services in this context, at least at the founding, is not how we would necessarily, especially in a modern context, think of services. It's really purely this guy fixie make computer go. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what they did. And they weren't the only ones. I mean, this was a field in the tech sector in Japan at the time. They were very successful at it. Okawa was a very ambitious guy, very good administrator. He made it a goal within a few years of founding this company, which I said he founded in 1968. He made it a goal that they would become the first publicly traded information services company in Japan. Now, that's very, very ambitious, especially for Japan. It is. It's very ambitious, especially because it's always hard to be the first to do something, because when it comes to stock market valuations, valuations tend to be done based on an understanding of the market that is shaped by what other companies in the field have done before you who have been successful. 
Obviously, there are times where you get crazy bubbles like the dot-com bubble in the United States in the late 90s, early 2000s, when people were just valuing companies crazily for no good reason. But generally speaking, it is hard to break in as the first person in a new industry because you have to prove that your industry is a sound investment. And it was particularly hard for information services because at this time, the public companies in Japan, they were companies that had tangible assets. They built things, whether those be electronics or cars or steel or ships or whatever else have you. They're companies that built things. They had tangible assets. They had factories and they had products and they had things that you could measure and understand, whereas information services was entirely people and perhaps software. It wasn't something that you could, like, look at and say, there's the valuable object. Think about this. This is the 1960s, right? Mm -hmm. This is really the time where we have that shift over from the industrial age to the information age. Mm -hmm. Here they are at the forefront. Absolutely. To grow the company, he did something very, very clever. Very risky, but very clever. Of course, in 1973, there was the big oil shock around the world where Arab countries, oil-producing countries that were upset with Western support for Israel during the Yom Kippur War, instituted an oil embargo against uh, the United States and many of its allies. Those that were alive uh, in the United States in this period will certainly remember the gas rationing and the long lines at gas stations. It was a real problem. But, of course, the United States is an oil-producing country and was an oil-producing country then as well. It was bad there, but now let's think about Japan, an island nation or an archipelago nation to be more accurate about it which does not produce any oil domestically, is entirely dependent on imports. It was a very bad period for the Japanese economy, and it was a period of time when companies in general really had to cut back. The common wisdom within the information services industry, as it was in every other industry, was that this was a time to be conservative, tighten the belt, Japan certainly has the lifetime employment culture, so I think companies were trying to avoid actually dismissing people, but you definitely were not taking on new people. You definitely weren't taking on new jobs. You were tightening the belt and making sure that you could weather the crisis. But Isaokawa had been studying the advance of the computer industry very closely. He firmly believed that the industry was on the cusp of a major expansion that computers were becoming cheap enough that many, many more companies were going to be able to have computers to help them run their businesses. We're not talking about a microcomputer industry yet. We're not talking about a personal computer industry. We're not talking about a computer on every desk and a computer in every home. But we are talking about a computer at every business. Isaokawa decided, this is the perfect time for me to expand. Everyone else is cutting back, so nobody else in the sector is going to be able to take on new jobs. Despite the fact that we're in this oil shock recession, there will be new jobs because the march of computers is inevitable. Computers are going to be able to save a lot of these companies that are having trouble money by automating certain parts of their business. So computers will continue to be a sound investment for companies, even in the middle of a recessionary period. 
when they have those computers, they're going to need engineers. And if I just hire everybody in sight right now, when no one else is hiring, I will be the only company that will have engineers available to take on these new contracts. And keep in mind, IT, information technology, is a force multiplier for any company. Mm -hmm. That allows for anyone, any given level of effort to be amplified multiple fold in order to create a much higher return on investment. Don't believe me? Imagine back then you have people doing, let's just say something simple, payroll. They have a giant ledger book, cash coming in, cash going out. Then along comes VisiCalc, spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. Oh, I made a mistake. I don't have to toil through this utter thing of nightmarish proportions. Oh, look, Susan wrote that in with pencil. I can barely read it. No, I can just do a quick search, do a little fix. Oh, look, it highlights that this error here in math. Oh, look, everything's great. Payroll's done in one hour instead of 20. Exactly. He decided in 1973, right when the oil shock is just getting underway, he decides that the company will begin hiring 500 new employees every year. That is ambitious. It is. He starts sending his personnel department around to every university and vocational school across Japan to find the best students to bring into the company. This just shows the daring risk-taking mentality of Okawa. And, and spoiler alert, in the Sega days, this is going to come back to bite a little bit, I think. But in the early days here, his daring nature was highly successful. Not only did he do that, not only did he increase the number of people, but he also decided to double the prices of his services. In a recession. In a recession. Because at the time, the services weren't really being valued properly. He wasn't looking to gouge anyone. This was kind of seen, I think, as kind of menial, not custodial work. That's not quite the right way, but, you know, kind of menial maintenance work. They weren't really being treated as engineers. And Okawa's logic was twofold. A, they're going to need us no matter what we charge because their computers need to go. They're not going to go out on the open market and hire the people to make the computers go. They're going to need us no matter what we charge. But two, he felt that this was the only way for the information services sector to be taken seriously. These individuals had to be seen as highly trained professionals providing a crucial service, and they needed to be paid accordingly, because this is all about laying the groundwork for going public. Since he did not have tangible objects, tangible items like manufactured goods or real estate, or something of that nature that he could point to that had value, the value that his company had was the people. And if his people were seen as lowly paid maintenance staff, that would not be seen as the kind of value proposition that would be worth investing in as a publicly traded company. This is a very common psychological thing. Think of all the time you have been offered something free in life. Mm -hmm. Conversely, all the stuff that is charged money. The more money, ironically, as odd as this is to someone who might be like, well, free, great, fantastic, I'm happy. The more money that something costs, that creates a sense in the person spending that money of much more increased value. Mm -hmm. There's actually studies of this with, say, wine. Mm -hmm. $2 wine, $200 bottle of wine. It could be the exact same wine. And people will say, oh, the $200 wine? 
Mwah. Beautiful. <laughs> Goes with my steak perfectly. Two buck chuck? Eh, I guess that's good enough for Charlie down the street to get it drunk on. What do you mean at the same <laughs> wine? Yeah, absolutely. The cost of something plays a big role in its perceived value. And so he decided there's going to be a big expansion. We're going to have the employees, but we're also going to turn these employees into a valuable commodity. It was a gamble. Obviously, a lot of businesses were not happy about this, but at the end of the day, they didn't have anywhere else to go. They weren't going to hire their own people to do this, and it was a recession. Everyone else is tightening their belts. No one's taking on new clients. So at the end of the day, they had to stick with them. So he had very few cancellations of his contracts, and as he predicted over the next decade, there was massive growth within the industry. Finally, at the beginning of the 80s, it was late 82, he was able to take the company public, the first information services company to go public in Japan. Okawa was never going to stop there, because as that last anecdote shows, Okawa was very sensitive to the way markets change. He understood intuitively that while there was this big expansion of more institutional mainframe computing over the course of the 70s as computers came down in price enough that more businesses could afford to have a computer or two hanging around. He also realized that this march of technology was going to continue to the point that computers were going to be something that everybody was using personally. Not a big leap. Personal computers were already starting to come in, obviously, by 1982. But he did realize that as these smaller computers became more capable and as everyone started using them, eventually that was going to mean a drastic reduction, if not the end, of his core business, which was providing engineers and, as time went on, also providing software and, and other technical solutions to companies that were maintaining these big mainframe institutional kind of systems. At the beginning of the 80s, flush with public money, you know, because it's just gone public, he decided it was time to expand the business in multiple new directions that would allow him to capture what he felt would be the future of information services. Even at that time, he figured that artificial intelligence and networking were going to be two of the big things to come in the future that would be driving a lot of this. So he started establishing or buying into companies that could help him in these areas. He founded a laboratory in 1983 called CSK Research Laboratories that was at that time established primarily to do AI research. The company actually still exists as CRI Middleware and is actually, it has nothing to do with AI anymore. It's, it's actually a video game company. It's a middleware company in video games that provides tools for uh, video game development. As they got more and more into the video game industry with the Sega purchase, which obviously we're building up to, CSK Research Labs kind of changed, pivoted more in that direction in concert with Sega. He also got into databases. They became a database distributor. We're talking online databases. I mean, this is pre-World Wide Web, basically pre-internet, so not online databases in the sense that we think of them today. I should say electronic databases not necessarily connected via network. But he established a company to become a distributor of article databases. He started doing joint investments in companies that were getting involved in early networking of computers. 
So with all of these kind of tendrils spreading out from the core CSK business, once he'd gone public and once he saw the future of computing being more personal, it should come as no surprise that he also was looking to enter the emerging personal computer market. Now, at the beginning of this, he wasn't looking at entering this market as a developer or a publisher. He wasn't quite looking at this whole Sega thing yet. We're going to get there, I promise. But he did decide that they should get familiarity with this field, because this is a brand new field for them. They've never been involved in this before, by opening a retail store for personal computers. Computers and software and books and manuals and all of this kind of thing. So that's what they did. Even before they went public, I think, some of the dates I don't have exactly, but I think it may have been as early as 1980. But it was certainly in the, in the very early 1980s, I think even slightly before they went public, that they opened their first personal computer store at Shinjuku Station, major metro station with a, a lot of retail around it. It did very well, so they opened another four or five stores. They had about five or six stores altogether. This was all being run by an employee by the name of Shinichi Nakamura, who is going to be a major player in our story going forward. It was actually through these retail stores that they had their first experience with Sega as a retailer looking for product to stock in their stores. So Nakamura approached Sega and put some business deals together with them. They did okay with all of this at first. The computer stores played something of a role in, I believe, their ability to go public. And Nakamura, who was a financial guy, was also instrumental in laying the groundwork for that public offering. I mean, he had done quite a good thing for them. But after their initial sales were very good in a period of time when all of this was exciting and new and those few people that were buying computer software were buying pretty much everything that was out there, it got to the point where as the market started maturing a little bit, it's still a very young market. I don't want to call it a mature market, but maturing more than it was a couple of years ago. The public started being more discerning about what they bought, and the people at CSK were never really dialed into this business. It was a new business. They were trying to learn. So they weren't good evaluators of what was out there in terms of software. They were basically just buying everything. It worked when everything was selling, but then only the best started selling, and they were still buying everything. Even though they had decent sales, they also had an inventory pile up. They had a lot of bad inventory that they couldn't get rid of, and that stock imbalance basically ended up torpedoing the entire venture. Do you know exactly what Sega products they were carrying? Because obviously they weren't carrying any of the console stuff. And I know we talked about the arcade, but I wouldn't really... I'm not recalling, at least, software that they're selling for PCs. Right. I, I don't know exactly what they had. I just know that from the sources I have, I do know that they were working with Sega. So yeah, that, that's a good question. They may have just been laying the groundwork, knowing that Sega was starting to announce intentions to get involved in that part of the business, as opposed to them actually selling something at that point. That's also very possible, because we're talking about the period of time when they're developing the SC3000 computer that is then morphs into the uh, SG1000 video game console. So I'm not clear from the sources whether they actually sold anything from Sega or if they were looking at forming a business alliance because Sega was about to enter the market. 
But either way, they got involved with Sega a little bit. It just so happens, though, that in this same period of time, Hayao Nakayama, president of Sega Enterprises Limited in Japan, was actually neighbors with Hisao Okawa, and their wives were friends, and so they kind of knew each other. And this would become very important after the death of Charles Bluthorn, chairman of Gulf and Western, when his successors at the company, the new head Martin Davis and the other executives there, decided that all of the conglomerating that Gulf and Western had done over the past decades The era of conglomeration was over. You no longer had the same advantages financially to conglomerating as you did a couple of decades before. And of course, the problems of conglomerates in terms of no synergy across businesses and and whatnot were starting to become readily apparent. Once Bluthorn was gone and there was no longer this personal connection to all of these companies he had bought, his successors to the company decided it was time to get rid of a lot of the businesses and refocus on some of the core areas like the Paramount movie business with the video game industry in the midst of a downturn, even though there were some logical synergies between video games and other forms of entertainment media, which Golf and Western itself recognized by creating some tie-ups internally with their Sega Enterprises Incorporated division and Paramount. With the video game industry in a downturn, Sega was one of these companies that was on the chopping block that they decided that they were no longer going to hold on to and were looking at breaking up. Nakayama was aware of this. Nakayama was never a guy that managed up very well, by which I mean he's a guy that likes being in charge. Therefore, he was not particularly happy with this idea that he could have a new corporate overlord that might not allow him to run things as completely and thoroughly as he wanted to. He kind of had a really great situation with Gulf and Western because, not to get too bogged down again in the Sega structure at that time, but Sega Enterprises Limited, the Japanese company, was a subsidiary at that time of Sega Enterprises Incorporated, which was the company in the United States that had been rejiggered, former cosmetics company, we have an episode on this if you're curious on all the details, that had been rejiggered into a parent company for the Sega operation. So they had Sega Enterprises Incorporated in the United States. There was an American R&D arm involved in that. There was Sega Electronics, formerly Gremlin Industries, which was the arcade arm in the United States. And then they had Sega Enterprises Limited in Japan, which is the company that we think of as Sega today, but at that time was the subsidiary of this other American company, which itself was a subsidiary of Gulf and Western. He had a great situation here because the American company, especially during the period of time when his frenemy David Rosen was running it, the kind of co-founder of Sega Enterprises Limited, but it's complicated. We have episodes. Don't worry about it. Go there. While he was in charge... Nakayama was basically just left to do whatever he wanted in Japan, especially in the areas of R&D and sales and marketing. He had some co-executive vice presidents that were American that were often involved on the finance and administration side of the business, but he could basically run that Japanese subsidiary as he saw fit, and there was actually very minimal oversight from the operation back in the United States. 
a sale of the company, especially if that sale was with a Japanese partner instead of another American partner, which was likely going to be a Japanese company buying this up, a sale to another company could put him in a situation where he did not have that same freedom to run things in his own way, which is something he had kind of liked. Uh, In fact, he only joined the company in the first place because he was promised by David Rosen free reign. Rosen bought out his company, Esco Trading, in order to install Nakayama as, at that time, the executive vice president and then later president of Sega Enterprises Limited. So he didn't want to leave this to chance. He knew that Gulf and Western was actively looking for buyers, and in fact, Gulf and Western came very close to selling the company to Sony, of all people. So funny when you consider, you know, the video game rivalry a decade and a half later with the PlayStation and the Saturn. They were very near to a deal. According to Hideki Sato, who was at Sega throughout this period, this is a I heard from this person who heard from this person kind of thing, but a Hideki Sato in a meeting with Norio Oga, who at the time was president of Sony and would later become CEO of Sony, heard the story that they were almost had a deal finalized, and then the person running the deal on the Gulf and Western side had a heart attack on the plane ride back from Japan and died, and that just kind of killed the momentum on the talks. Nakayama did not want the company sold out from under him in a way he couldn't control. So he actually went over to visit. The implication in the article is at his house, I don't know, but since they were friends, I mean, it makes sense. But whether it was at house or office is immaterial. Nakayama actually approached Okawa and said, you know, hey, we know each other. Our, our families get along. Would you be interested in buying Sega Enterprises Limited from Gulf and Western? Isaokawa said, yeah. We'll do it. He knew he was going to have the capital from going public, uh, or he did have the capital from going public, and he was very keen to get into that home computer market. By this time, 1983, 1984-ish, I think they might have started discussions in late 1983, though. By this time, Sega's entrance into the home computer market with the SC3000 and the video game market with the SG-1000, was already well-known. So they were in the process or had already entered, uh, depending on exactly when they were talking in 83. I don't have the exact month or day. Sega had already just entered or was just about to enter this exciting new area of home computers and video games. And this is exactly the field that Okawa wants to expand his business in, knowing that personal computers are going to be more the future than institutional mainframe computers. So he becomes very enthusiastic. And immediately after having this talk with Nakayama, because, of course, Nakayama is just the president of a small subsidiary of a slightly larger subsidiary of a huge company that is Gulf and Western, he doesn't have the authority to actually formally offer Sega Enterprises Limited to Okawa. Right after they have this conversation, Okawa immediately takes off for the States to begin negotiations with Gulf and Western. And again, this just shows he did not hesitate. This characterizes Okawa throughout his entire career. He is always looking for the next direction that the market is going to go. And when he decides on what that next direction is, he is all in. He goes for it whole hog and does everything necessary to push to the forefront of that business. There's no half measures with the guy. 
Absolutely. Sega's available. Sega gets me into the market I want to be in. Don't think about it. Fly to America. Start negotiating with Gulf and Western immediately. Don't take time to run the numbers, do the projections. I mean, I'm sure as the negotiations continued, his financial people, you know, ran numbers for him as well. It's not like he went into a completely blind, but still, no hesitation, no thought of, is this a good idea? Yes, it's a good idea. Go do it. So he ends up buying the company in April of 1984. For about $40 million, terms of the deal were not formally disclosed at the time. I've seen $40 million even bandied about. I've seen $38 million bandied about. Whatever it was, it was roughly $40 million that he purchased Sega for. And then, of course, as we talked about in our Sega episodes, he then installed himself as chairman of the board of Sega. And Hayao Nakayama, of course, continued as the president. And I suppose somewhere in there also got to add a fancy CEO title. In addition, Okawa wanted to make sure that Nakayama and the management team had a vested interest in the new company. So, in point of fact, CSK and Okawa's people bought 70% of the company, and Nakayama, and I think some of the other managers as well, but for sure Nakayama, then bought the remaining 30%. They actually did this on a loan from Okawa. So Okawa loaned the money to Nakayama so that he could purchase the remaining 30% of the company with basically the promise that when the company went public in the future, something that Okawa was hoping to do, that Nakayama at that time would sell some of the shares in order to pay back the loan. This was the beginning of Sega Enterprises Limited as we think of it, the first time that it was completely divorced from American ownership, either in the form of the American owners that it had at the very beginning, where it was its own independent companies, but all of the ownership was American, Rosen and Bromley and Stuart and Lemaire, all of these people we talk about in our Sega episode that came very near the beginning of this 190-episode odyssey that we've been on. (laughs) You know, you can look there for more information on that, either as an independent company in Japan run by Americans or from 1969 on as a subsidiary of an American company, Gulf and Western, that actually owned them. This is the Sega as we think of it. Not an independent company because CSK controls them. At this point, they're a wholly owned subsidiary of CSK, but at least a truly Japanese company with a Japanese parent, and a Japanese management team. Okawa's not stupid. Even though we've been talking about how bold he has been with all of these moves, he wasn't being reckless. First of all, Sega had a very large headquarters building in Otori. He figured at the very least, if none of this worked out, He could sell that big headquarters building and make back a lot of the purchase price. He wasn't betting the company on Sega being successful. He did also want as immediate return of investment on that big purchase price as possible, because it wasn't chump change that he paid for it. In the context of how big Sega grew, $38 million, $40 million, certainly something of a bargain. But also a pretty big layout for the company at the time when they had just gone public themselves and they were in the midst of investing in a lot of different companies in a lot of different sectors. He now gave Sega the same goal that he had given CSK Corporation just over a decade ago. 
We want this company to go public, and we want this to be the first publicly traded coin-op, arcade, video game, whatever company in Japan. Now, there were some companies involved in video games like Nintendo that had already gone public, but they didn't go public as coin-op or video game companies. Nintendo went public back in the 60s when it was transitioning to a toy company. He decides that Sega needs to go public as fast as possible so that he can recoup his investment. At this point, he is taking a very hands-off approach to managing Sega. He doesn't want to be involved in the day-to-day of it. He's perfectly happy to yet let Nakayama do the day-to-day running of Sega. He is very adamant that the company go public so that they can recoup costs. That gentleman we mentioned before in the context of the video game retail stores comes into the picture once again at this point, and that is Shinichi Nakamura. So I'm going to take a little bit of time here to discuss who Nakamura is. Nakamura is actually one of the very important sources for the discussion that we're having in this episode, because he did a series of retrospective essays for the Nihon Ketsai Shimbun, or Nikkei, newspaper, which is basically the Wall Street Journal of Japan. It's the most prestigious financial newspaper. And a while back, he did a retrospective for them where he just discussed the entire trajectory of his career. And that forms the basis for a lot of what we're talking about in in this episode and what I've learned about CSK Corporation outside of the Sega situation. I did a free trial with them and grabbed those articles. And of course, I'm having to machine translate because I don't know Japanese. So uh, this is part of the reason why I can't get super detailed on the details on some of this stuff, because whenever you're dealing with machine translation, you can never completely take the word of nuance. But machine translation has certainly progressed to the point where you can get a lot of the big picture out of things. Nakamura at this point becomes very important to the story of Sega and how Sega fully transforms at this point from this American company in Japan to a fully Japanese company. Shinichi Nakamura was actually not interested in technical fields or even finance at all when he was a child. He was born into an entrepreneurial family. His family was in the pharmaceutical business, but he had absolutely no interest in taking over that business. I believe he was the eldest son. So generally speaking, with with the way a, a patriarchal society like Japan works, you know, the eldest son takes over the family business. He had no interest. He felt that it was a business that we'd have to be licensed and that there would be a lot of government regulation. He thought that pharmaceuticals were probably going to face more and more government regulation as time went on. He believed that as government regulation got stricter and stricter, it would be harder for smaller companies in the field to survive in that environment without going out and raising large amounts of capital. And he just wasn't interested in getting on that roller coaster for the family business. So he declined to take over the family business, and his younger brother took it over instead. It is interesting to point out, though, that even though he wasn't interested in taking over this business stuff, even at this time, he was kind of showing his financial mind. The reason he didn't want to take over the business is he was basically running his own financial predicting on how the industry was going to go and decided that the business was not for him based on the financial outlook. So I guess it's no surprise that he would eventually become a business guy. His interest was actually in writing. 
he really wanted to be a writer. Uh, in his own words, he was never talented. I mean, he was not talented enough to be a writer. But that's where his interest was. He joined a literary club in school and printed a magazine with his friends that contained some of his own stories and poems. When he went to school, that's what he wanted to do. He entered the Faculty of Letters at Kwansai Gaikun University. But this was the period of time, just as we talked about in our Koei episode, the first of our Koei episodes, where the student protest movement was in full swing in Japan, and the universities were basically shut down. We talked about this in the context of the Arakawas, who were going to school in the same time period and found that they spent the vast majority of their time not going to class because the universities were just completely shut down. He was there for kind of four years. He started in 1965, and he was there for kind of four years. He barely took any classes. In his own words, he wasn't even sure that he earned any college credit in the entire time that he was there. Not specifically because he was a slacker, but because the entire Japanese university system at that time was in utter chaos. He did graduate, (laughs) as he says, even though he doesn't remember receiving any credits, and he knows he didn't write a graduation thesis, which was required, he did get a diploma. This was just the insanity, and I'd love to know more about this. I mean, I'm not a Japanese cultural historian, so I haven't read anything about this, but I would love to hear more about the trials and tribulations of the Japanese university system during the student movement in the 60s, because obviously in the United States, where we're based, there was a quite similar movement, student protest movement. While that movement did have the effect of periodically taking over certain more liberal campuses like Berkeley and shutting things down from time to time, it was not on the same scale as Japan, where it feels like there were, from what little I know, there were months at a time when many universities were just not operating at all. But he got out of school. He got a diploma. There was no graduation ceremony. He got it in the mail. It was just chaos and didn't really accomplish anything in school. Certainly didn't accomplish anything he needed to do to be a writer. So in the end, he got the only job that he really could, which was as a truck driver for Pepsi, delivering soft drinks on a route in Osaka. Then he ran afoul of the protest movement again, because at the same time that there was a big student protest movement, there was also a big labor protest movement at this time. The people he was working with at the company decided that they would go on strike. The truck drivers and everything decided that they would go on strike. And the labor movement was getting kind of violent, and he just wasn't comfortable with it. I don't know if he wasn't comfortable with it because of his politics or because he was worried about the violence or if he was a dyed-in-the-wool capitalist and didn't like the idea. I, I don't know. I don't know what the reasons were, but he didn't want to be a part of this. However, he also knew that he could be in serious trouble if he tried to keep working and broke the strike. His choices were basically to strike or resign. So he chose to resign. But this ended up being very fortuitous because this gave him a chance to once again reevaluate his place in life. He decided to attend a vocational school in Umeda called Japan Computer College and learn about computers. You know, he'd been reading about how computers are coming along. You know, at this point, We're talking at the very end of the 1960s. Computers are coming along, and uh, he's like, yeah, this is going to be a big thing. I should probably learn something about it. He wasn't really that fond of it, but he did well enough in it 
to graduate. So at that time, he interviewed with Computer Services Corporation. This was in 1970, when the company was only two years old. So he went there, he interviewed, and he was hired. At CSK, he was assigned to Matsushita, a big consumer electronics company, as the person in charge of maintaining the uh, computer at their main headquarters. He did a good enough job at that, spent about three years working there, I believe. Then he was brought back in-house. That's when his financial background kind of started to develop because he was put on the project. He was not the only person. There were three or four staff members put on the project, but he was put on the project of developing the plan in order to take CSK Corporation public. You know, he has all this financial experience. He made the initial Sega contact, as I said, because he was put in charge of this retail operation. The retail operation fell apart, as we said, and at that point, Nakamura almost left the company. He was ready to fall on his sword, as one does in Japan, take responsibility for the failure of the computer retail operation by resigning. He wasn't going to be fired, but, you know, that's not how it usually works in Japan. You don't fire people that fail in a business venture. The person that fails in the business venture resigns by way of apology. He was all ready to do that, but Okawa still recognized his value. Okawa still recognized that he had a keen financial mind. He had an existing relationship with Sega already, was actually the only person in the company that had any kind of relationship with Sega. Okawa had had a relationship with Nakayama as a friend, as an individual, but he didn't have a relationship with Sega as an organization. The only person in the company that did was Nakamura by virtue of working with their sales department on figuring out this retailing stuff. When you put together the fact that he had a good financial mind, had been instrumental in taking CSK public, and had a pre-existing relationship with Sega, Okawa decided to install him at Sega as the new CFO in 1985, with this stated goal of taking the company public. Nakamura joins the company in early 85 kind of New Year's Day, 85, I think, very beginning of the year, he is kind of shocked and horrified by what he sees there. Because at this point, and we talked about this some in our Sega episodes as well, at this point, Sega really is an American company in most ways that matter. Yes, the company's in Japan. Yes, at this point, the management is Japanese. Yes, at this point, they're owned by a CSK, a Japanese company, their subsidiary. But they were run as an American company with American executive staff, a mix of American and Japanese executive staff for years. All of the high-level company documentation, uh, memos, and business documents were in English. Promotion at the company into high-level executive positions, even amongst the Japanese staff, was based on ability to speak English as much as ability to do your job. Not that they were promoting people just because they could speak English, but you had to have a, a decent command of English to advance in the company in addition to being talented in whatever you're talented at. They ran HR in a completely different way than most Japanese companies do. The way Japanese, at least back then, I'm no expert on this, so I can't say when and if this changed. I can only talk about what I know from sources that I read, like Nakamura here. 
at the time, the idea in Japan, of course, Japan had a concept of lifetime employment. The idea was you join your company, you pass very rigorous competitive entrance exams to get into the company of your choice. But once you're in, you're in for life. The idea of lifetime employment is the idea of a mutual investment in each other. Yes, the company is going to provide you a place of employment for your entire working career. But in return for that, you not only need to give the company everything you've got, you also need to understand all aspects of the company very well in order to function in the company very well. The way it worked in most areas, I'm sure in highly specialized fields, this was not the case. But the way it worked in most areas is that you rotated through a wide variety of jobs in a wide variety of departments throughout your time at a company. If you're a human resources person, you don't spend your entire career in human resources. They don't have that concept of you're a human resources person. You may spend some time in the human resources department, and then you may go to the sales department, and then you may go to the promotional department. You may go to the communications department. You don't just get a degree in HR and spend 30 years in HR. You don't just get a degree in marketing communications and spend 30 years in marketing communications. You rotate all around the company. And the idea behind this, the logic behind this was, is you had to understand how every aspect of a company worked, of your company worked, to be an effective employee of that company. Since you were going to be at that company for life, they knew that wouldn't be wasted. They knew that they weren't going to train you in five different areas of the company, and then suddenly you were going to go off and they would lose a bunch of time training someone else to do all the things you were doing. That's the way employment worked at these Japanese companies. Well, Sega was a traditional American company. At Sega, you joined a department and then you stayed in that department. You didn't rotate. You know, we kind of saw this when we talked about Space Invaders recently with Tomohiro Nishikado as well. We talked about how frustrated he was when he first joined Pacific Industries, which was at that time the product development arm of Taito, because he really wanted to work in development. And instead, they had him in everywhere but development. They had him in on the assembly line. They had him in purchasing. They had him in all of these other parts of the company that wasn't development. But that's literally just the way it was done back then at the big companies. You rotated through departments. Sega didn't work that way. This is a stereotype, so it's not true in every case, but in this case, it's an appropriate stereotype to apply. There was kind of this idea back in the days of the bubble economy when the Japanese were slowly taking over everything that Japanese companies were incredibly good at long term planning, and American companies were very poor at long term planning. American companies were so caught up, public companies especially, that were on the stock market, were so caught up in hitting their numbers, hitting their quarters, hitting their targets quarter after quarter, fiscal year after fiscal year, that they spent a lot more time on short-term planning and didn't spend a lot of time on long-term planning, whereas Japanese companies, they would create five-year plans, they would create 10-year plans. They wouldn't just look at quarterly results. They wouldn't feel the same pressure to deliver quarterly results, and they would look far into the future. And that was perceived rightly or not, at the time to be an advantage the Japanese companies had, something Japanese companies prided themselves on, and one of the reasons that Japanese executives felt that they were on the cusp of overtaking the United States as the world's most powerful economy, which for a brief period of time before the collapse of the bubble economy, it was something that looked like it could realistically happen. 
that's a long way of saying at Sega, he discovered that they did not have any long-term goals. They didn't have good P&L tracking, profit and loss tracking. They basically just had their quarterly goals and they weren't thinking more long-term. They had inherited a lot of these kind of American habits, and it's not necessarily true that those American habits were bad habits in terms of how to run a business. We're not critiquing in that way. I'm not an economist. But they were a problem in the sense that if you want to go public in Japan, you need to show that you're a good, well-run Japanese company that is going to continue to thrive in the future. You can't do that if all of your business practices are completely wrong and completely counterintuitive based on the expectations of the Japanese markets. It was really Nakamura. I I bring this all up. I mean, I know this is kind of a, a long tangent in a way, but I bring this all up because we had talked before in some of our Sega episodes, we had kind of mentioned the fact that it was an American company and, you know, kind of in form, even when it was in Japan, and that it wasn't really until after the CSK purchase that it truly became a Japanese company. But at that time, I didn't really have a lot of detail about that process. It turns out that the process was instigated by CSK in order to take the company public. They had to make it a more Japanese company. It was uh, Shinichi Nakamura in his capacity as the transplanted uh, CFO, transplanted from CSK to Sega, that undertook the work to turn it into a real Japanese company. He did it by hiring a bunch of new people. He dismissed the CFO and brought in a uh, new CFO by the name of Gi Iwata. He also brought in six other people. I think some of them were CSK or former CSK people, and others were just people that he or Okawa knew from various business relationships. I don't have the names of all those people, but they went by the Seven Samurai. They basically spent the next three years transforming Sega top to bottom into a Japanese company. Now, I don't know that that really had an impact on things like product development, on the coin-operated games they were creating, or that kind of thing. This is more on the financial and administrative side of the company, rather than the development, sales, and marketing side of the company. They basically thoroughly transformed Sega into a Japanese company as part of this effort to take them public. This was another real challenge turning Sega into a public company. Because again, the way they characterized it, and I believe this is probably accurate, though I haven't done the research, but the way Nakamura characterized it, they would be the first coin-op company in Japan to go public. You know, like I said, Nintendo went public in the 60s, and you know, Nintendo obviously made coin-operated games like Donkey Kong and what have you, but they didn't go public as a coin-op company. They were a company that went public and then later made coin-operated video games and console video games a part of their business. There had never been a company whose primary business was coin-operated amusements slash video games that had gone public before, I believe. Now, I should probably do some quick checking on this, which, which I can do, so we don't get ourselves in too much trouble. I'm going to at least look at when Taito and Namco went public, because those are the other two big ones. We're doing history in real time here, people. 
Yeah, Taito didn't go public until 1993, even with the huge Space Invaders boom in the late 70s that temporarily, only temporarily, made Taito the largest coin-op company in Japan. They did not go public on the strength of that. They did not go public until 1993. They create world real history real fast. (laughs) I love it. And Namco... I have this information. Just need to bring it up. We're doing this in real time. It's exciting, people. It won't be real time by the time you're looking at this because, you know, this is pre-recorded. It's not live, but it's it's kind of like doing real time. So let's see. Namco. Okay, so Namco. Namco did go public in 1988. I'm not sure which one, Sega or Namco, went public first in 1988, but they went public in the same year. I'm sure nobody else would have gone public before them. The point is still the same. That at the time, whether Namco just beat them or not, at the time they were looking into this, there had never been a coin-op slash video game company that had gone public in Japan before. So just like CSK, they had the great challenge of being first. Then the second great challenge on top of that, which is that they weren't a fully Japanese company, which is a problem. And of course, the problem with being in the coin-op business is this is still considered a shady business. And at this point, it's probably considered even shadier in Japan than it was in the United States by this time. You know, the United States had plenty of periods of time where the business was seen as very shady, and it's not like there weren't concerned people during the golden age of arcade games. I mean, there was a Supreme Court case about trying to limit minors' access to arcades. There were communities that banned arcades in that time, but in general, the arrival of solid-state pinball and the arrival of the video game had kind of turned public opinion a little bit so that even though they were still frowned upon in some circles, it wasn't like these are the worst dens of iniquity that ever existed. In Japan at this time, arcades were considered kind of the worst ends of iniquity that ever existed. They were often referred to as 3K locations. And those 3Ks were Kurai, which means dark, Kowai, which means scary, and Kitanai, which means dirty. Dark, scary, dirty. That was the public perception of game centers. Of course, up until 1984, they had been operating 24 hours a day in many places. They were seen, just as in the United States, as a place where delinquents went, where gangs went. They were dark because it made it easier to see the monitors. And of course, since they were dark, you know, people hiding out in the corners, doing all sorts of bad things, gangs hanging out, doing bad things. There had been a lot of pushes to regulate the industry, and in 1984, they were finally regulated under the same law that regulated things like massage parlors, where they gave you happy endings. The video arcade was legally considered basically the same thing as a sex shop or a gambling den or other places that were such a strain on the public morals that they needed to be heavily regulated by the government. That's a fun business to say that we should take public. And remember, we're not just talking about Sega as a manufacturer here, because we have to remember, as we've talked about before, in Japan, the major manufacturers are also operators. So they're not just creating the games that are going into these game centers. They are running these game centers that are seen by many in the public as no better than a massage parlor or a gambling den. 
So that's a challenge. Certainly an uphill battle. (laughs) And it's a challenge that the entire industry was going through at this time. And there were many efforts. Sega was doing it. So was Taito. There were many efforts to rehabilitate the arcade in this time period. Sega in this time period actually starts what they call their 3K campaign, which is an operation to transform these facilities into something that the public can consider safe, welcoming, friendly, high-tech, futuristic, and worthy of patronage and worthy of investment. They're, of course, helped in this by the full-body cabinets, things like OutRun and uh, Space Harrier and whatnot that are more technologically advanced, impressive kind of almost amusement park rides, allowing them to tie arcade games more into the whole amusement park scene rather than the whole gambling den scene. Then they also start trying to build bigger and better facilities, clean up existing facilities, put in better lighting, etc., etc. Why am I talking about all of this in the context of our Sagan CSK episode? Again, the reason this is all happening is entirely being driven by CSK. So in terms of looking at Sega through the lens of its parent company, which is the entire point of this episode, Asao Okawa made an investment in Sega because he felt that their home business, their home computer and video game console business, is a stepping stone or gateway into the future of the computer business as a whole which is moving towards personal computers and away from the institutional mainframe computing that provides CSK the bulk of its revenue at this time. But needing a quick return of investment on his purchase of Sega, he needs the company to go public as soon as possible to recoup his investment as they build up this new base of home systems. Doing that requires the company to attain a patina of legitimacy that it does not currently have by being one of these Japanese coin-op companies that is involved in this horrible, horrible business of kurai, kawai, kitanai, dark, scary, dirty. So as a result, they need to clean up the image, they need to push the technological angle, they need to push kind of the amusement park angle almost, rather than the game center angle, which is why it's fortuitous that at the same time, the R&D division of the company is also coming up with these great new games that are almost like amusement park rides like OutRun and, and Space Harrier and Afterburner and what have you. They were making those games because those were things that Yu Suzuki and and others in that area found interesting. They weren't making those kind of games because there was a mandate to make those kind of games. But it all comes together in this beautiful synergy, and it's all about legitimizing the coin-op industry to go public, to recoup the cost of investment, to eventually take over the home, and then pinky the world. I think so, Alex, but what if we were to just take clean cute and safe and turn it into Japanese and then make it so that that's the actual 3K word. <laughs> ah, I love it. Because those are 3K words. <laughs> yes, indeed. That was one part of this. And then the other part of this is that they needed the industry, the stock exchange officials, to figure out 
what their business looked like and what they were selling and what the investment was. And generally speaking, the officials at the exchanges tried to keep a distance from the companies because they didn't want there to be any kind of appearance of favoritism or bias. But he was actually able to convince some officials from the stock exchange to actually come down, come to their factories, see the process of building their games, take a look at some of their games, see that this is kind of this cool, high-tech amusement industry and not this dark, seedy industry, and and kind of try to allay some of those fears. So by kind of doing this two-pronged attack— where they're attacking the public perception through their 3K campaign to improve their game centers, and then attacking the market perceptions by allowing the stock exchange officials to become familiar with the business. Nakamura is successful in helping Sega become a public company, and in 1988, they are listed on the second section of the Tokyo Stock Exchange, graduating very quickly in 1990 to the more prestigious first section. At this point, there's really not a lot for the next few years to say about CSK that you can't also say about Sega. We can really skip over the next few years. We don't need to talk about the Master System or Sonic the Hedgehog or Genesis Does or Console Wars or any of that craziness, only except to say one thing about it. Isaokawa, in the early part of the CSK ownership of Sega, was not primarily concerned with the Sega business. CSK was a big company that was primarily in the computer services business. It's in the name of the company, Computer Services Corporation. They were investing in a lot of different areas. They were investing in the database businesses. They were investing in AI research. They were investing in early network stuff. Sega was just one of many investments. He was hopeful that Sega might help them get into uh, what he liked to call the base of the computer pyramid, which was the average Joe Schmo user of a computer. He was hopeful that that might happen, but he wasn't banking on that happening. He had a plan to sell the building if he had to. He wanted to take the company public so that he could at least recoup his investment if nothing else worked out. This was just one aspect of a much larger empire, and he was basically hands-off about it. I talked about this in our Sega episode, but I've talked to several presidents of Sega of America. You know, Bruce Lowry was president in the late 80s when they were launching the Master System in the United States. He remembers Okawa being around. He remembers having to go to Japan and present to Nakayama and Okawa to get approval for some of their marketing plans for the Master System. He remembers him being around, but he doesn't remember him being greatly involved. Tom Kalinske, who I've also interviewed, president in the early 90s during most of the Genesis period, doesn't remember Okawa being involved at all. I mean, obviously, he knows who Okawa was, and he was involved with Okawa in other ways. Okawa undertook many charitable ventures focused on youth in both Japan and the United States. Kalinsky was involved with him in some of his charitable ventures and other stuff like that, but wasn't involved with him in the sense of running Sega. However, as the Mega Drive slash Genesis became more successful, particularly in the United States, United Kingdom, and certain other parts of Europe, as the 90s wore on, Sega started to bring in so much revenue that Okawa even though he wasn't directly involving himself in the running of the company yet, 
was more and more seeing Sega as his real vessel for the future. He saw the penetration that they were getting in video games. He saw the penetration they were getting with young people. He saw the technological possibilities in that space. And he started to become more and more convinced that, yes, this is indeed the area where the future of all my business lies. You know, this has horrible echoes to a certain Atari and a certain Warner and Warner (laughs) going, Atari is my golden goose. There's some parallel there. It's fair to say. Sega at this point is not the tail wagging the dog. CSK is still very big and powerful, but Okawa knows that this institutional computing thing is is not going to allow them to stay on top forever, and he's going to have to push into other areas. He's going to have to push into personal computing, and he's going to have to push into networking. He sees more and more that Sega could be an avenue towards reaching into both of those fields. So somewhere around 1993-ish, It's not the exact date, but somewhere around 1993, Nakamura, at least, noticed a real shift in Okawa's treatment of Sega. He's still not trying to run the business. It's still Nakayama's show. But he starts introducing himself more and more, not as the president or CEO of CSK Corporation, but as the chairman of Sega Enterprises. For those that don't know, the exchange of business cards in Japan is almost a ceremonial, ritualistic experience. It's a very important business ritual. Around this time, Isao Okawa starts listing himself on his business cards as Isao Okawa, Chairman, Sega Enterprises Limited. This really goes a long way to understanding why, at the end of the 1990s, in the back half of the 1990s, as Sega starts to struggle, why Okawa starts to pay more and more personal attention to the Sega business, something he had not done in the first decade of his ownership, and goes a long way to setting up the series of events at the end of the decade and the beginning of the next decade that result in Sega shooting for incredible new opportunities in the console business, failing utterly, transitioning to a software company, and ultimately being bought by Sammy. So in part two of our look at the Sega-CSK relationship, we're going to do a deep dive on those last years, because as I teased at the top of this episode, there's actually some really, really good research on this period in particular that we can take some time to go into detail on, not just take 10 or 20 minutes on, but take a whole episode on and kind of recast those final years of Sega in the console business in a new light based entirely on its relationship with its parent company, CSK, and especially its chairman, CSK chairman and CEO, Isao Okawa. I just think Alex wants to just extend this because he knows how popular Sega episodes are. (laughs) Eh, I mean, we're going to do another episode on the Dreamcast next, guys. You you all like the Dreamcast, right? It's thinking. (laughs) So we hope you continue to think and wait anxiously for episode 191 of They Create World. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworld.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create World, 
The Story of the People and Companies that Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworld. You can also help by getting the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. You can hear more of Alex just saying things on the video game newsroom time machine where he's a frequent guest. He says things, lots of things. So go check it out.